Hey, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. When I was in kindergarten, my parents called a family meeting. You ever have family meetings? Yeah, my parents, they took my two sisters and I, and they sat us down on the couch. It was all serious, and they said, guys, we got some big news for you. And my oldest sister, she was six years older than me, she said, we're getting new computer speakers? And they said, no, <laughs> not quite. Uh, a little different than that, but we're actually um, going to be adding to our family. We're, we're going to have another baby. And my oldest sister, she just started crying. My next oldest sister, she started cheering. And I'm just sitting there like, uh, what are we having for dinner, Mom? But I remember uh, several weeks later, we went with my parents to the ultrasound. And the room, you know, was all dark. And we got to go with my mom and dad. And we were all huddled around looking at that screen, all the different little blobs on there, trying to figure out what everything was. And I remember, plain as day, my mom said to the technician, she said, okay, so that's the head and that's the body? And the lady responded. She said, well, actually, that's the head and, and that's another head. And my mom just started crying. I, I thought it was because we were having a two-headed baby. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea what was going on, but apparently they said, congratulations, you're having twins. And man, that was unexpected. I thought, you know, with two more, I have two older sisters with two more babies coming. I thought, surely the Lord's going to give me a baby brother. And they were both girls. But I love them to death. They just had a birthday yesterday, and uh, they finished college, and, and I do love them. But, you know, growing up in a pretty big family with, with four sisters, we, we had our usual issues that big families have. You know, else come from a big family. Uh, we, we got on each other's nerves, yeah. We, we argued over who was next in line for the bathroom or who would get to watch what they wanted on TV or who would get to sit in the front seat of the car. But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed growing up in a big family. There was never a dull moment. It was a lot of fun. And, and, and still, today, there isn't a dull moment in my family, even though we've all grown up. We have our family group text going. Does your family have a group text? Uh, um, there's this constant exchange of pictures of the grandkids. Uh, we share news and prayer requests and life updates. We even argue about sports and politics. But at the end of the day, we love each other. I mean, as part of being a family, there's this unspoken bond that we have, and we don't have to earn it. We don't have to worry about losing it. It just is, and we are and always will be family. And that's why in the New Testament, the church is often described as a family, because we too have a bond that unites us. We too get on each other's nerves and argue sometimes, but we're a family. We've been joined together, and that means we love one another, or at least we should. <laughs> and that's the message we're going to look at this morning as we continue walking through the book of 1 Peter. If you've been with us, you'll remember that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter to a group of churches who were in a place then called Asia Minor. And Peter wrote to help these believers understand that they were exiles. They were strangers and sojourners traveling through a world that was not their home. They were facing trials because they were outcasts, and yet their citizenship was in heaven. So Peter instructed them on how to live as exiles. That's the whole point of the book, living in exile. And we, too, need this instruction because we, too, are exiles. 
So we saw in our first few messages the reason that we're exiles. It's because we've been saved by Jesus. You'll remember we have a living hope. We are more blessed than the prophets and the angels. We've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. So, so Peter wanted these exiles to understand the gift of grace that each of them had individually. But now in today's passage, Peter's going to clarify something. Even though these exiles have been saved as individuals, they are not to live as individuals. They are not walking this path of exile alone. This is not a solo mission. They are not lone rangers. But God has actually given them a family, a family of exiles. That's the point of our message this morning. So let's read our text, walk through it, and then I want to give you two things we must do as a family of exiles. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. You can be seated. Here is the first thing we must do as a family of exiles. Number one, we must love one another because of the gospel. Verse 22 begins, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Peter is speaking here of believing the gospel. When we become Christians, our souls are purified. We're forgiven of our sins when we obey the gospel, when we repent and believe. And that all sounds great. It's pretty basic stuff. But then we read something that we may not hear very often, something that might even be a little surprising. Peter is about to tell us one of the reasons that we're saved. He's going to tell us one of the goals or purposes of our salvation. If I were to ask you, why, why were you saved? What were you saved for? Many of us might say something like, well, I was saved to go to heaven when I die. Or I was saved to have a relationship with Jesus and, and be forgiven. And those things are true. We were saved for those purposes. But there is another reason that you and I were saved. A reason that we don't think about much. And Peter's about to give us this reason. Look again at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We see here that one of the big reasons we are saved is to love one another. So what Peter's doing is he's linking together our love for each other with the gospel. These are two things that are directly connected. They just go together like cookies and milk, like Dorothy and Toto. The gospel produces love for other Christians. And this is all over the New Testament. Let me give you just a few other verses. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 to 35, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 20-21 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not seen, has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Man, there's, there's no way you can miss this when reading through the Bible. It's crystal clear. Christians must love other Christians. And this love we have comes from the gospel itself. And here's what Peter wrote next at the end of verse 22. He said, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Even though the gospel produces love, even though we are saved to love one another, we still have to be commanded to do it because we're sinners. <laughs> we naturally don't love very well. We need this reminder, which is why it's repeated over and over in Scripture. And one thing for us to remember is that when the original readers of 1 Peter heard, hey, love one another, they were not thinking of just Christians in general like we might. Yes, we should love all Christians. Yes, we should love all people. But when these New Testament believers heard, love one another, who were the one another's that came to their mind? It was the people sitting next to them when they heard it. It was their own local family of church members. So I believe and I would argue that we should have a special level of love for the people in our own local church. I mean, these are the people that we sing with and serve with and learn with every single week. We fellowship with throughout the week. So the, the people of Blue Valley Baptist Church, man, that's my family. I mean, this right here. Is the place where our love should be supremely on display. I know some believers that go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. They're great folks. I love them. I know some believers that go to Grace Church. I love them. They're great folks. But I have no higher love than for the people of Blue Valley. And that's because we've covenanted together. And this is something that many Christians are missing today. Church is not just a place you go or an organization you serve, but it's a body you join. When you become a member of a local church, whether you realize it or not, you're making a commitment to the people. You're agreeing to become a part of the family. We're agreeing to have you as a part of our family. And now we're joined together. We become a family of exiles. This means there is no such thing as a solo Christian. There are no superman or superwoman Christians. It's not me and Jesus. It's me, you, and Jesus. Yet we all know people who say, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. Or, you know, I'm a Christian. I just, you know, I just don't do the church thing. Look, I understand that the church has done harm to people. I've experienced that personally. And I know that church is messy and challenging at times. After all, it's a place full of messed up sinners. <laughs> but that is no reason to neglect the church. In fact, the New Testament doesn't even have a category for a Christian that isn't a part of a local church. Think about it. All these letters that we read, most of them at least, were almost, were, were almost all written to churches. 
And if the church is the bride of Jesus, then how can we claim and say, Jesus, I love you, but man, I really don't like your wife. (laughs) Is that going to work? So, Micah, are you saying that I have to go to church to be a Christian? No, I'm saying you have to go to church to survive as a Christian. Like, I could tell you right now, if it were not for the church, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't make it. Of course, being a member of a church doesn't guarantee someone's a Christian. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not in a church membership role. But my point is, we can't do this without a family. We need each other. So God has given us a family of exiles. And we're called to love one another. But boy, that's not always easy, is it? Some of you guys are hard to love. (laughs) Kidding, mostly. The church is a diverse place. We have people from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of experiences. We have a whole lot of different personalities going on here. So how can so many different people possibly love one another? Well, Peter's about to explain. Look at verses 23 to 25. He says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So how do we love each other? Again, it's the gospel. The gospel not only calls us to love one another, the gospel also gives us the ability to love one another. Verse 23 says we need to be born again so we can love. And he starts talking about a seed, which he compares to the word. We're born again by the word of God. If you've been saved, that means someone, somewhere, shared the word of God with you, and you believed and you were changed. But here's the kicker. There's something special about the word of God. There's something special about this. He says it's, it's living and abiding. It's imperishable. It won't die out. And to prove that, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, hey, all flesh is like grass. He's saying, people, we are like grass. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little different from what the world tells us. I grew up in the age of self-esteem where, you know, in school they were so careful to teach us how important and special we all are. And we can do anything we want if we just put our mind to it. We are just all unique little snowflakes. But the Bible says, hey, you're not a snowflake, you're grass. (laughs) One day you're going to get mowed down. (laughs) The point is, it's a little bleak, but the point is, you're going to die. You will not live forever. So all these things we work for, all these things we try to find our significance in, all these things we think are so important, one day all of it will be gone. The grass withers and the flower falls. But here's the key. The word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter says that same word, the same word Isaiah was talking about, that's the gospel. You believe. So even though you are grass, you have a seed that has been planted in you. And that seed is the gospel. It's living and abiding and growing and moving. It's changing you and making you into something beautiful. We tend to think of the gospel as this kind of static message. Been there, done that. But the gospel, Romans says, is the power of salvation. It has the power of God in it, and it's what supercharges and powers our love. 
Peter's saying, hey, the gospel is living and abiding, and it will remain forever. If that's how the gospel is, then that's how your love should be. Your love should reflect the the gospel that produced it. Last fall, I uh, seeded my lawn for the first time. Man, I, I had no idea what I was doing. So I went to a place I love uh, called Grass Pat. It's a great place. And I went in there and I told them, I said, guys, I need some seed. And they said, um, well, what kind of grass do you have? And I said, you know, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the green kind. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but he helped me figure it out. He got me all hooked up and, and I went home and I put the seed down and I watered it. And guess what happened? Man, I could not believe this. But grass grew. I was so proud of myself. Seriously, I'm still proud every time I see it. But really, I shouldn't be too proud because that's what you expect, right? You plant grass seed, it should produce grass. You plant apple trees, it should produce apples. When you plant the gospel in someone's heart, it should produce love. And that's the whole point. It's the living and abiding seed of the gospel that should produce a living and abiding love. A powerful gospel should produce a powerful love. But what if it doesn't? What if we don't love as we should? Then here's what that means. We don't have a personality problem. We don't have a people problem. We have a gospel problem. That's what the New Testament would lead us to believe. Man, if you don't love other people, if you don't love each other, then you don't love God. Man, that's harsh, but that's what 1 John 4.20 said. If, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's harsh, but true. A lack of love means a lack of gospel. Think about it. If an apple tree is not producing apples, we don't go to the store and buy a bunch of fresh apples and, and tie them to the tree. No, we assume that there's a problem with the tree. Something must be wrong with the roots. And the same is true with our love. If we struggle to love one another, then that is a sign that we struggle to fully understand the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Man, if you know what Jesus has done for you, you will love. Because love comes from the gospel. Love is one of the purposes of the gospel. So as a family of exiles, we must love one another. Here's the second thing we must do. Family of exiles, number two, grows in love through the gospel. Now, in light of everything I just said about the gospel producing love in us, we must acknowledge that we do not always love as we should. None of us love perfectly. We're sinners. So what we need to do is we need to grow in our love. We need to learn to love one another more. And and that growth also happens, you guessed it, through the gospel. It's not by sheer willpower. It's not by gritting your teeth and saying, I love you, okay? All right, it's not by faking a smile in the hallway. How you doing? Great. You doing good? Great, yeah. It's by watering the seed that's been planted, the seed of the gospel. It's going deeper and deeper into what Christ has done because the deeper we go, the deeper our love. And Peter gives us two things we can do to water the gospel seed and grow our love. Here's the first. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Why does Peter need to say this? (laughs) Because he knew the churches were struggling with it. And you and I know we still struggle with these things today. 
I grew up in church, and some of the meanest things I've ever heard said from one person to another, I heard said in church. Some of the ugliest comments I've heard made about someone else came out of the mouths of professing Christians. Some of the juiciest gossip I've ever been told happened in a church. One of the reasons Christians struggle to love one another as we should is because we tolerate relational sin. That's what these five things are he listed. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These are relational sins, sins that break our fellowship and harm the bond we have as a church. And yet these are often the kinds of sins that we excuse. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's just words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? We try and, and justify sinning against a brother and sister in Christ. We, we say things like, oh, I'm just speaking my mind. I'm the, I'm the type of person who just tells it like it is. Or we say, oh, well, it's not gossip if it's true. Everybody knows it's true. I just say it. To sin against another believer is a serious offense. It's to attack your own body. It's spiritual self-harm. It's anti-gospel, anti-Christ, anti-church. It's to swing an axe at the roots that holds the very tree we live in. It's sinning against your own family. So what are these sins that quench our love for one another? Let's, let's go through that list real quick. The first one he says is malice. This is a general term for wickedness done to another person. This is any action or word that harms someone else. And I don't know if, if you know this, but words do harm people. So let me ask you, do you hate anyone in this church? Do you have ill will or bitterness towards anyone? And of course we say, oh, well, I don't hate them. It's just that they're so, and there we go, right? We justify malice. Love helps and builds up rather than harms. Second one in the list is deceit. We know this means dishonesty or lying. It's to say something untrue or to withhold the truth. So are you honest with one another? When people ask you how you're doing, do you share honestly how you're doing? To act like you're doing better than you are is to be deceitful because love is honest and truthful. Hypocrisy is next. It's to act like something you're not. It's to pretend to put on a show. And man, this is so easy to do in church. I'm speaking from personal experience. It's so easy to dress up nice and smile and sit in your spot and sing your songs and act like everything's great. But you don't want people to know the truth. Are you the same person here in this building that you are with your friends or at work? Would your kids say that you act the same here that you do at home? Love is consistency between your outer and inner self. Next is envy. Envy is similar to jealousy, but envy is feeling bitter when something good happens to someone else. Have you experienced that? When someone else gets the job or they have the good marriage or they make more money or they drive the car you want and you feel that little twinge of discontentment in your heart, that's envy. Love celebrates with those who celebrate and weeps with those who weep. It's being content with what God has given you rather than mad about what he's given everyone else. And lastly, there's slander. Slander is to speak harmfully about someone else. 
This includes saying things about someone that is not true, insinuating or exaggerating things about them, saying negative or mean things about people. It also includes sharing rumors or spreading gossip. It's talking about someone when they're not present to defend themselves. Love seeks to build up other believers with your words. It seeks to honor and respect, especially when that person isn't around. And when love has a problem with someone, it goes to that someone. Love doesn't talk about a person, it talks to a person. And look, I know this is basic kindergarten stuff, but you would be surprised how often these things happen in church. We let this stuff slide. And it slowly suffocates our unity. So Peter says, as clear as day, he says, hey, put it away. I mean, all of us are guilty of these things from time to time, me included. If you were not convicted reading through that list of sins, then you weren't listening. (laughs) We all struggle here. But the good news is that we have grace when we sin. If we take our sin to the cross and we confess and repent, we will be forgiven. And let me encourage you, if you've sinned against another person in this church, if you have wronged another believer here, go to them and deal with it. If you have a problem with someone, fix it before it damages the unity of our church. You may need to find someone after this service today and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I'm sorry when I said that to you. I didn't know it came across terribly. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Or, you know, you weren't around the other day, and I said this about you, and that was wrong of me. Would you forgive me for that? That's how we put away sin. Then Peter says in verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the second way that we can grow in our love is longing for pure spiritual milk, which we know is the word of God. The more we intake the Bible, the more we will love. And he says we're to long for it like newborn infants. One of the things that amazed me uh, when my wife uh, birthed our two children was how quickly (laughs) they wanted to drink milk. And I won't give you all the details, but they immediately knew what to do. It was just natural for them. And then when we took them home, They would wake us up in the night wanting to eat. And if you delayed it all, boy, they would scream and let you know. (laughs) That is the way we should desire the word of God. We should see it as sustaining our souls. We should long to have it. When we go without it, we should feel famished. We should crave the milk of God's word if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Right there, again, Peter grounds this in the gospel. He says, if you taste the goodness of the Lord, if you have the seed planted in you, if you have been born again, you will desire God's word. You will put away sin. You will love one another. I brought this morning a picture of my family from several years ago. I keep this in my office. And, uh, you know, pictures are a little misleading, Because everyone's smiling, they're all dressed up nice, we all got our arms around each other, and it kind of looks like you're like this perfect family. We're not. My family has issues. We have struggles. But as I said at the beginning, we're still a family. We still love each other. We still have each other's back. You better not say something bad about my family. You better not harm one of my sisters. 
Is that how you think about your church family? No, we're not perfect. Who is? We're crazy. (laughs) We're messed up. We got problems. We get on each other's nerves. We're not picture perfect. But we're family. We've been saved by the same gospel. We follow the same Jesus, and we're called to love each other. Is that true for you? Do you consider these people your family? Do you treat them like family? Are you actively seeking to love them as family? We're not in this alone. But thank the Lord, we are a family of exiles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.